Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center. This is episode 134, Sampling Science in a Lab Aloft. I'm Pat Ryan. On this podcast, we talk with scientists, engineers, astronauts, and other folks about their part in America's space exploration program. Today, we're focusing on one of the four main pillars of the mission of the International Space Station. Flying 250 miles up above your head, give or take, there's a science laboratory orbiting the Earth at roughly five miles a second, and there have been people on that station every single day since November of 2000, more than 19 straight years, and still counting. The station was built and is operated by partners from five international space agencies, which promotes international cooperation. It has served as a destination in space, encouraging commercialization of space flight and space research, served as a place to learn what we need to know to return astronauts to the moon and send them to Mars, and done it all while supporting scientific research that has meant history-making achievements for science and for life here on Earth. And I don't mean this is like your high school science classes. I'm talking about cool things like the first ever sequencing of unknown microbes in space and determining how cells repair damaged DNA in space, using 3D biological printers to produce usable human tissue, just for starters. Our guest today is Dr. Kurt Costello, who was named the International Space Station Chief Scientist last year after serving more than three years of, as the Deputy Chief Scientist. Costello came to NASA in 2000 as a training instructor in the Mission Operations Directorate and worked for a time in the Space Station's Daily Operations Group before moving into the Station Program Science Office in 2012. He's also the Deputy Manager of the Station's Research Integration Office, and I'll get him to explain what that means as we discuss some of the cool new experiments just getting underway on orbit and the exciting results from some of those that have gone before. Ready? Here we go. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light circle for red. There she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Kirk Costello, what does it mean to be the chief scientist in the ISS Program Science Office? Well, thanks, Patrick. That's that's a good question, and it's uh, interesting from the perspective of what it means to be a program scientist. So the ISS program is a, a group of, of managers that help bring all of the wonderful experiments that we have to the space station. Uh, those managers have the responsibility for n not only assuring that the, the vehicles, the rockets, get there with all of the payloads and that the station operates the way it should, uh, but also in terms of the chief scientist, making sure that all the science is integrated into the plan so that it can be performed on orbit. So we serve a purpose to both prioritize all the incoming science and to provide an independent advisory role to the program manager for uh, questions regarding the, the, the flight of that science. Mm -hmm. And because the, the science is an important part of the International Space Station program, but not the only part. This is, and so you're helping with the integration of that, that science uh, goal into the whole program. That's absolutely correct. I mean, Space Station has been a great vehicle not only to showcase our engineering capabilities, being able to assemble it on orbit, uh, this huge structure yeah. and ultimately awesome laboratory that we've got up there, but it's it's also this international collaboration. So as, as we have our NASA science, so do all of our international partners have their science, and we need to integrate our roles with, with their science as well. If we focus on the science part of it, how do you characterize the overall science mission of the space station, apart from any individual experiment? Yeah, that, that's a great a distinction because I really see it as a twofold science mission. First of all, there's the, um, the science to bring uh, discoveries and knowledge about how we're going to continue and enhance our capability to explore space. And secondly, there's the uh, national lab mission, which is to return benefits to the Earth. 
So both of those science focuses are really the heart of what we do on space station to help with our exploration mission and then to also return new discoveries and science benefits to Earth. Uh, you point out an, an important point that the International Space Station is designated as a United States national laboratory. Uh, and, it, and that's the point of that designation? It is, and it's also a unique national laboratory in the fact that it is multidisciplinary in nature. Uh, most of our national labs are focused for one specific scientific area, where oh. it, the ISS is just this incredible multidisciplinary laboratory where you have biology right next to physics in, in, a, in a rack on board the space station. It is also unique in the sense that it is in space and it has very little gravity. Um, what makes that environment attractive to researchers? Why do they want to do experiments where there is no gravity, so unlike here on Earth? All right, so um, let's talk about microgravity and what that is just to, to help everybody out. Of course, there is gravity in space. In fact, most of the gravity we feel on Earth is right there present on the space station. However, it's counterbalanced by the centrifugal force that we feel as we're in orbit. So essentially, we're in free fall the entire time, and that results in a microgravitational force uh, that our experiments are exposed to over time. And it's that over time part that's unique about the space station. We can simulate microgravity on Earth, but we can only do it for a few seconds in the case of a drop tower where, where you drop an item in free fall. Mm -hmm. That's good for about two to 10 seconds. Or you could go on a parabolic flight like some of our aircraft do, and that gets you about 22 seconds of microgravity exposure. Or if you're on a sounding rocket, one that just goes up and comes back, comes back down, you're talking about six minutes of microgravity. Oh, okay. But on space station, in orbit, we're able to maintain that microgravity level for a very long time, and that allows us to look at processes that need to develop over a long time. For instance, wound healing. We want to know what happens to uh, humans at, if they have to recover from a wound in microgravity. Does it take longer? Does it heal differently? That's a process that takes time. And so being able to study that in analog models on the space station requires us to have a long amount of time. Growing plants is another great example. You can't grow a plant in a couple seconds. So we need <laughs> that exposure like yeah. uh, over time to be able to tell us what the impact of microgravity is on this organism. Both of those examples strike me as research that's really important if you're planning to send people uh, to keep them in space for long periods of time like you would do if you sent them away from Earth. That's part of what we're of what those kinds of experiments are aimed at learning more about? That's absolutely the exploration part of our mission. It's how do we conduct science that's going to help us with our exploration goals, especially for the Artemis program. Artemis, of course, has multiple destinations, one of them being a sustainable presence on the lunar surface, the other being the eventual exploration of Mars. And those voyages are going to take a lot longer times to, to be able to reach those destinations and also to be able to make, maintain our astronaut health during that time. So a lot of our investigations are focused on doing those tasks. We also need to look at things like technologies. How do we close the environmental control system loop? That means how do we make sure all of the stuff that we use to keep ourselves healthy, oxygen, water, um, food, is recyclable? Right. And uh, we can get back as much as possible of that. We need to close those uh, loops to be able to uh, support a mission to Mars over a long duration. Because we can't bring all of those things, brand new things, with us. That's right. But as we step out across the solar system, uh, those platforms we have get smaller and smaller. ISS is a big stepping stone. Um, however, our lunar base will be much smaller and Mars probably a much smaller outpost as well. So we can't just afford to bring all of that mass with us. We have to figure out ways to be smart and recycle most of our goods. Are there particular kinds of experiments that are that the International Space Station is really good at hosting, uh, providing a place for certain ones of the disciplines that, that are underway? Um, in terms of discoveries, I think what you're getting at is, is oftentimes 
we're surprised when we make discoveries in orbit about the way something behaves. And two of those fields, while we make discoveries in, in all of them, two of them are most prevalent. And I think that's in fluid physics because of the way fluids behave in microgravity. Um, in microgravity, the, the surface tension force is the largest force you have. And that has impacts on the way fluids behave in systems. And we want to know how they behave because fluids are prevalent in um, fuel tanks, in For you instance, know, yeah. ECLIS systems, in all areas where you know you have to process water or other uh, critical fluids. And uh, ECLIS being environmental control. That's right. Um, but in, I think it's a good example. In that environment where there's only a microscopic level of gravity, fluids, liquids, don't come down to the floor. They don't, they're not pulled down like they are on Earth, and we've got to find out what they are going to do. Exactly. And bubbles don't separate. So bubbles can don't play rise. havoc on your, your system. So if they don't come out or you can't position them correctly, it becomes a, a difficult um, case for your system to be able to manage that. The other area where we're continually making discoveries is in the human system just exactly what extended duration microgravity exposure does to the human system. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, we discovered um, what we now refer to as SANS, or spaceflight uh, acquired neuroocular syn syndrome. SANS is um, a case where we've seen astronauts' vision deteriorate after long duration stays on orbit. And this happens to some people, and it doesn't happen to everyone. And so it's very critical for us to understand, one, if we can tell if someone is going to be susceptible to, to this deterioration, and two, how to prepare countermeasures to help them and, and make sure that their vision isn't severely impacted on a long-duration mission. To, to be clear, the, the impact, as I've understood it, is, has been, I guess the best way to say is is fairly minimal that astronauts have their vision has has degraded a bit but it's not like they've had a dramatic uh, decrease in vision is it well some of it can be most of it has been reversible but some has not I, again it is variable based on the individual uh, but some of the uh, impairment can be significant with cotton wool spots noticed in the field of vision oh. And, and other impediments to, to normal 2020 vision, which we'd like our astronauts all to have. Sure, and, and it's, gotta, it, it's gotta be you know, annoying to know that it happens to some and not others, and you're trying to figure out why. Absolutely, and this is where the Human Research Program comes in, and their dedicated research is really aimed at scientifically looking into the background cause for why this happens, and then investigating countermeasures to help it uh, help tolerate it over time. Those two examples, then, in fluid physics and in the human system, the the human life sciences, the International Space Station is trying to figure out things we need to know to support future exploration. That's right. Is there a, a running total in, you know, in more than 19 years now with human crew members on board? How many experiments have have been run on the station? Um, I'll say a lot, but the actual <laughs> number is 2,971 investigations Ooh, as, of, 3, as of the end of increment uh, 59. So close to 3,000, and that represents just over 4,000 different investigators that we've had wow. participate in that research. And those investigators have come from 108 countries and regions. So just not uh, the U.S. and its international partners. But we've uh, taken in research and, and had uh, uh, co-principal investigators and principal investigators from 108 different countries. And, and that's regions. more countries than are even partners in the space station project. Uh, far the whole, more. The whole world is uh, pretty much involved. Well, not yet. We, we would love to have them join, Close. but um, we're getting there. Mm -hmm. We're getting there. In the introduction, I mentioned that you are also have the responsibility as the station's uh, in the station's research integration office. Can you explain to somebody outside the, the building what that means? Sure. So um, when we get a research sponsor who comes in, and that might be somebody like NASA's uh, human research program or space uh, life uh, 
biology program come in and they sponsor research and select a PI and give them a grant to do this research. That PI then needs to figure out how to get their experiment to the space station. They do that using payload developers and the research integration office is the office here in the NASA ISS program that helps those payload developers through all the sea of bureaucracy that surrounds NASA requirements to fly your investigation on a federally owned vehicle. I can't imagine. So <laughs> we step in to help them with the tough stuff, the understanding the safety and vehicle requirements, making sure they've put together a schedule that gets them to the launch on time, and then understanding their science requirements and how that translates into um, uh, performance of their investigation on orbit. So being able to help uh, our, our payloads operations center in Huntsville understand how to plan those requirements and have everything ready to go so that when their investigation finally gets to the space station, we can make it happen. The assistance you're offering those people is, is a good thing to help people make use of the station, but I guess you're also coordinating to make sure that all the experiments that are being done on the station are complementary of each other. Absolutely. We're, we're always checking for conflicts uh, between investigations and, and also trying to understand if we can put together this integrated plan, that's, that's the integration and research integration office, yeah. this integrated plan to get all the payloads done that we want to. Um, the whole goal is to make the process simpler. So a typical research investigator who would go into their lab and do their investigation doesn't have to do a whole lot more than that. They can hand it over to a payload developer, tell them this is how we want our investigation to run, and then we can make sure that you can actually do it on, on the space station. So the scientists don't have to also be experts in, in bureaucracy. Space flight hardware, yeah. right. Mm -hmm. You have highly trained astronauts on board the station that, who are helping with these experiments, but not all of the astronauts are scientists. Um, and I'm sure they, they get some training on the ground about how to run all these machines. Um, how, does, uh, how does having human crew members there contribute to getting these experiments accomplished? Um, it contributes in two ways. First, first off, um, you talk about the training levels and, and some of our um, astronauts not having a science background. Some do. But for those that don't, we do offer specific specialized training on the ground when it's required. So some instruments are very delicate. Uh, some need to be handled in just a certain way, and they'll get that training on the ground. But improvements in the program over time have also allowed us to offer a number of other things uh, for training our astronaut, including just-in-time training. If you've ever gone on YouTube to try and fix your, your car part that just broke uh -huh. and look up the video, well, we can do that too, and we provide those type of videos for our astronauts so that they can view it right before they perform the operation and uh, get a refresher, a mental refresher, and know exactly visually how to, how to perform form the uh, investigation. We've also made improvements in our space-to-ground capability for communications. And what this does is allow us to have our investigators tie in real-time to their operations on board, especially if they're complex. And that gives the astronaut a path of communications to call back down and talk about what's going on in the ex experiment, especially if they see anything that looks out of place. So they're, the astronauts on the station are talking directly to the scientist. That's right, and that's happening more and more now that we've improved the communication links. Uh, what that does is it not only helps you avoid any you know, errors in the experiment going off as planned, but the astronauts are also eyes and ears on what's happening real time. And they have a unique perspective and are able to pass that back to the PI. Sometimes we see things that are out of the ordinary and they're discoveries. And that's a great thing that, that happens, especially when it gets relayed directly to the PI. Mm -hmm. They know they're onto something, they can investigate further. And it gets them all excited then that something they didn't expect is going on. That's right. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Let's talk about some some uh, specific experiments. Um, what what's going on now that 
you would dazzle people with that I, that I would call kind of gee whizzy. What, what's happening up there? Well, I think one of the experiments, or it's not one, it's actually multiple experiments that gets people's imagination going, are um, our collaboration with NIH NCATS. So that's the National Institute of Health uh, and a National Center for uh, Translational Science. Uh, what they're trying to do is understand how we get therapies or treatments uh, through the process of certification faster than the traditional process, which takes years and years and has, you know, a, a drug mortality rate of, of, of a huge percentage. So very few, about 12 percent of those uh, new investigational drugs actually make it through testing. So NCATS has the role of trying to figure out ways that you know, we can go through this process quicker and better. Uh, they partnered up with the National Laboratory to issue uh, the Tissue Chips in Space Challenge. And tissue chips are, uh, in, in this case, microscopic chips or uh, small volume chips that allow for the growth of tissues. Uh, and uh, small, small organoids. You're talking about computer chips? N not computer chips. Okay. They're only referred to as, as chips because they're about the same size okay. and shape as a computer chip, but they're really microfluidic vessels. And in some of the chambers, you'll have cells laid down, and those cells can form into tissues, and, and then you uh, vascularize them. You, are able to send them blood and nutrients and grow them on orbit. Um, that allows us to look at the changes that occur in these small biological systems uh, and may lead to things like personalized medicine. What it has led to as part of an ISS investigation is the miniaturization of these systems. So um, most of these systems on the ground require architecture that's about the size of a refrigerator, if you can think about that. Okay. So what we refer to as rack size on orbit. And what we've been able to do is miniaturize those systems through working with a number of our payload developers into systems that now fit within, say, a bread machine. Um, so much smaller, much more simpler and autonomous for investigators to use. And uh, we're seeing real progress being made with several of these systems being tested out on orbit. Another unique thing about these grants is all of the researchers in the NIH NCATS grants got to fly two missions. So for most of them, the first mission is complete. And now they're learning from that. They're learning how did their system work? Was it validated? And now they're going to go back and refly their systems and this time include treatments for disease states for some of these tissues. Uh, explain what we mean by disease states. Well, um, for instance, one of, one of the tissues is uh, a bone and knee synovium tissue. So that's the cartilage in your knee joints. And it's there um, to do an investigation for uh, arthritis. In this case, um, injury uh, induced arthritis. Okay. So the arthritic feelings you might have after a severe injury to your knee. We'll be looking at that and now in this next flight we'll be testing a drug, an investigational drug, to look at whether or not it treats that on orbit. Uh, a lot of these investigations are really being done because we know the microgravity environment is a stressor on biological systems. And because we can do multiple systems in these, in these tissue-on-chip systems, we can test and um, evaluate how the spaceflight is affecting the tissues. And we can do that through um, uh, molecular testing on these tissues, DNA testing, uh, and proteomics, metabolomics, other types of measurements that now allow us to see a little bit better how microgravity is really affecting the system. I'm, I'm curious when you, you say that microgravity is a stressor on biological systems, because in, in my mind it seems like, well, if I'm floating, I'm pretty relaxed and, and everything is cool. In, in what way are you seeing that that causes stress on a, on a person or a part of a person? 
I guess the best way to put it is we don't typically float all the time. <laughs> so we were all born and raised and evolution developed us over billions of years in, in a 1G field. Right. So being in a, a gravitational potential that's different from that uh, does act as a stressor. Our cells really don't understand what they need to do. Water doesn't flow the same way that we would expect. And of course, all biological life depends on water. Right. So in, in partiality, it's it's just that fluid exchange problem again and, and trying to understand how that impacts our cells. But it does create what, what appears to be a stress state. And um, that's also something we've noticed through years of research in the human research portfolio is that while astronauts are affected a certain way on orbit, Typically, when they return to Earth after weeks to, to a few months, in some cases, they recover. So um, that, that stressor field has gone away, and they're able to make the transition back to health. There's a couple of other uh, experiments that have to do with human bodies or body parts that I saw that I wanted to ask you about. One called printing biological tissues. You're really 3D printing organ-like tissues? That's right. So um, TechShot is a company um, that has partnered with NASA to, to fly their biofabrication facility. This is a 3D printer for human cells. Um, and in terms of human cells, uh, they can arrange them into larger structures, organoids, um, uh, tissues that are meant for um, implantation Did or testing. you say testing. organoids? Organoids, yes. Okay. Small organs. Um, so what they do is they, they typically take a, uh, a bio-ink, which is made up of, of stem cells or seed cells, and um, print it pretty much like you would see in your typical 3D printer. However, um, because we're no longer in a gravitational field, you can print structures that are much more delicate and would collapse under their own weight if done on Earth. On Earth, technicians have figured out how to do this as well, but they oftentimes have to use fillers or uh, templates structure uh, to keep the cells in the position. And those oftentimes can be somewhat toxic to the cells that they're trying to grow. And you have to figure out later on how to get rid of them. Uh, so printing 3D um, biostructures in space has the advantage of not having to require that okay. or being able to print with less viscous inks. And uh, that's, that's key to, to keeping these cells healthy and helping them grow into the organoids or tissues that you want to develop. And they would be able to maintain their structure and not collapse on themselves if they were brought back to Earth. Right. Uh, a, a lot of times they're, they're frozen for return because, uh, again, this is just the initial stages of understanding uh, the, the quality of these structures, the, the bio um, uh, hardiness of them, if you will, and understanding if, uh, if they are a better tissue substitute. In the long term, uh, we'd have to find solutions for how to safely transport them back to the earth, but maybe that's something uh, Sierra Nevada might be able to help us with in the future. <laughs> they have a, a very uh, G-friendly landing profile. Uh, and maybe if you're creating these in space, you don't need to bring them back to earth. You need to use them in space on some future, some mission of the future. Potentially, far in the future, far we, in the future. We, we might mm -hmm. be looking at that. But this is really an investigation that, that's coming out of the commercial sector and looking at ways to help develop the lower Earth in orbit environment as a commercial marketplace. And this may be a potential use for that in the future. I was going to give you the opportunity to expound on that, because not all the research being done on the station is from academia. A lot of it is coming from commercial companies. That's right. Um, so uh, we have a large contingent of um, investigations that are being driven uh, through commercial partnership. Um, those are looking at ways to help 
uh, establish Leo as a place where we want to uh, enhance the marketplace capability for commercial providers. Uh, they may be coming in uh, with a materials processing uh, type solution that works better in microgravity. For instance, uh, bio, or not bioprinting, but 3D printing uh, very delicate structures like for microsatellites or um, microstructures uh, to assemble on orbit. Um, they may be looking at materials development. So uh, in, in space, you don't have buoyancy-driven convection. Uh, hot things don't rise over colder things. So a lot of times that can lead to discoveries when you're doing material science, especially involved around melting uh, or processing of materials. So there have been advances where people look at new materials in space and how to form stronger and, and more advantageous materials using microgravity as, as uh, one of the factors. I noticed another experiment in which uh, they're working to create artificial retinal implants. Um, this coming out of the some portion of the human research too. That's right. That's a uh, well, not really human research at this point, but uh, that is another company called uh, Lamb Division, and they're pulling together um, essentially 3D printing of these uh, retinal tissue patches that they've developed. And again, they're able to do it better on orbit because you don't have gravity making the cells sag. Uh, towards the bottom of the container. Mm -hmm. uh, that allows you to print these patches in a much more uniform way. And um, I don't believe they're uh, in clinical testing yet, but their goal is uh, to one day be able to print these patches and help with uh, retinal myopathy and other diseases of the eye. Cool. Um, let me change the, the focus. Instead of talking about human research, um, talk about technology. There's an experiment called Astro-B with three free-flying robots. Why did I write that? Three free-flying robots uh, to help future astronauts do work, right? Mm -hmm. um, Astro-B is actually, um, I guess, the second generation of free-flying robots that we've had on board station. Uh, the first generation uh, NASA had was uh, our... Um, Spheres investigation. So Spheres, um, you may have even seen in press photos before, they were some brightly colored balls right. that flew around using compressed carbon dioxide. And uh, we had many different uses for them, some to test out technologies about docking and fluid mechanics for fuel tanks and, and things like that. But they were also used as an educational demonstrator. And we had high school students and middle school students program in uh, programming challenges the maneuvers of these uh, uh, spheres. Well, and Astro then there was competitions in which the, the astronauts helped position these soccer balls to uh, allow the students to drive them. Right, and then the student's code was, was driving them, and usually the winner was the one who got there first or got all the <laughs> objectives right. Um, Astrobe is the second generation of that. Okay. But instead of using carbon dioxide jets to um, uh, fly around the space station, carbon dioxide's not great for our astronauts. Well, <laughs> of course, we have to remove it after we use it. They use a ducted fan technology. So those are just fans uh, with, with louvers that help them position and, and move them around using air. So they're just pushing air to maneuver. Right. Uh, so they're very much like the, the spheres. They're programmable. They have different tasks and duties. They also have an interface panel for the astronauts, and they have a little perching arm, a cute little robot claw <laughs> that can reach out and attach itself to uh, various fixtures on the space station. And that's particularly helpful because it allows the, the units to essentially stare over a, a crew member's shoulder uh, to help them with tasks to be able to act as uh, an audio-video interface. Uh, they also have RFID uh, readers in them. So it's possible to use the, the Astro-B to move around station and look for certain RFID tags, which is great because it may save our crew members time from having to look for something that may have gotten lost on orbit. Cool. Then, uh, I guess, and they would allow people on Earth or somewhere else to be looking at what the astronaut on the station, in this case, is doing to 
to assist them. That is the goal eventually. And of course, all of this is done in trying to enhance our autonomous capability. Someday we won't be as close as the space station is to us. We won't have a comm link. As close that, to Earth. Right. We won't have a comm link that gets us to space station in less than a second uh, right. or, or whatever the vehicle is. And the crew may need more onboard assistance. So these type of assistance are valuable in testing out our future autonomous capability. I was taken by another experiment called BioRock, looking into interactions of liquids, rocks, and microorganisms to improve mining materials? Yeah, this one's pretty far out there, but uh, it is looking at um, biological microorganisms' ability to break down and isolate certain minerals uh, from rocks. So um, biomining is becoming uh, more prevalent in certain areas, and understanding how that could be used in a microgravity environment, say for processing asteroids or something in the far future, is what this investigation is really going after. Uh, another uh, experiment that's had a bunch of different generations is rodent research. Um, you're evaluating physiological, muscular, and skeletal effects of the microgravity environment using rodents as test subjects, right? That's right. So we've had 60 investigations, I think, to date in the area of rodent research on the ISS. Um, and that includes all of our tissue sharing program, uh, people who get samples after, after the rodent missions. But a lot of them are looking at drug interactions for um, and, and therapies for uh, muscle loss, bone loss, common side effects of uh, flying in space that we know about. And others are really looking at setting out an understanding of how a rodent model an animal model commonly used to precursor human research right. here on Earth can be used and applied as uh, a zero-G model for human health. So a lot of those uh, investigations are looking at treatments and other investigations are really looking at solidifying the links between the rodent research model and the human research model. So it's extending what's being done in lots of different kinds of science on Earth now in that environment. That's right. We've been talking about experiments going on inside laboratory modules. There are experiments that are going on on the outside of the station, too, that the, the crew members don't have hands-on uh, interaction with. And one of the biggest ones that we've just heard a lot about is the alpha magnetic spectrometer. Uh, Luca Parmitano and Drew Morgan recently completed some spacewalks in order to get that experiment back in operation. Talk, talk about what the AMS is doing. So the AMS is um, a particle detector outside, external to the space station. It contains the largest permanent magnet that we've flown to date. And it has... How large is it? Uh, very large. <laughs> I'll go with very. Very large. Um, it, it has um, provided us billions of data points now. Um, with a B, billions. Billions with a B. And... Its ultimate goal is to understand the energy regime of high-energy cosmic rays and how those models either account for or don't account for the presence of dark matter and dark energy. Um, it's an amazing instrument. It was, it was meant to last for three years and complete its mission in that time. However, now we're eight years in. And as you said, we just uh, conducted an amazing set of EVAs uh, to repair the instrument, which had lost some cooling capabilities over the years. And it is now back on track to be up and operating and continue its mission, which is to really help us zero in on the, in the models that we use to understand cosmology and whether or not dark energy dark matter exist and, and how they might impact those models. To, to try to prove dark matter exists. Well, as, as Sam Ting puts it, Dr. Ting says, it, I can only disprove dark matter. Uh -huh. uh, and that's, that's based on the way theories work. So the cosmic rays being collected tell us something about the energy spectrum. And the theories behind that can either account for uh, dark matter being in the equation or not. So if he gets data, he could maybe show it's 
not there, but he can't show specifically what dark matter is, not just from the uh, the data collected there. Based on billions. Based on billions, billions and of billions data of data points. I think 130 billion. 130 billion. There's another experiment on the outside um, called EcoStress that is from 250 miles up is telling us something about water in plants on the ground. That's right. It's, it's looking at Earth's forest and specifically those in the northern hemisphere uh, over, over, over North America and really trying to understand the stress levels of uh, plants as they go through the growth season and understanding uh, throughout the day, uh, which is unique to the ISS orbit, the capability to do this at different times in the day, um, to understand throughout the day what's happening, where's the water going, where are the plants stressed, where are they not. Uh, this is a great indicator and and. Uh, for the water cycle on Earth and understanding how that works, and also for helping us to develop models of how temperature and climate affect the stress in our crops and forests. I, I just think it's cool that we can tell all that from an instrument that's in orbit 250 miles away. It's, it's absolutely cool, and it's made possible by the fact that you have this huge ISS platform uh, as, as a host for these external investigations. Typically, an external investigation would cost much, much more because you have to pay for a rocket to launch it. You have to pay for a power bus, a data bus, a thermal bus, uh, all to service it. Well, those services are provided by the International Space Station and the Space Mission Directorate uh, payloads at NASA uh, that fly to ISS can take can take advantage of that, so they can cut that part of their development out of the system. There's been laboratory research going on on the International Space Station with crew members there for more than 19 years now. I got to believe that some of those early scientists have had time to crunch their data and figure out uh, what they learned from from their experiment. Give me a, an example or two of of what International Space Station experiments have have learned have taught us so far yeah uh, some of the some of the biggest discoveries that have gone on to really provide benefits for us have been in the area of uh, bone loss of course our astronauts originally on orbit uh, suffered quite a bit of bone loss um, it was equivalent to osteoporotic uh, right. women at at 70 at years of age yeah. at, at an advanced age um, well, that was until we learned how to counteract it. And part of, part of that learning process through the Human Research Program helped us zero in on two things, resistive exercise and vitamin D uptake. Hmm. So the vitamin D uptake itself went into the USDA recommendations for people trying to combat osteoporosis and um, bone-related decay. So that's, that's a great example of one area of research that's really paid off in dividends. Another area that we're hoping to be very beneficial is in the uh, continued investigation of cool flames. So Cool flames. Cool flames, yeah. So uh, fires can burn hot or they can burn cool. And this is uh, a phenomena that we see on Earth sometimes. If you've ever had an old car engine that knocks— when you try and shut it off or, or it would, it it would rumble a bit and it won't stop. Well, that process is evidence of cool flames going on. They're combustion occurring at a much lower temperature. But on Earth, we can only observe it for a very short fraction of a time. And we can't do it in a stable environment. On ISS, within the combustion integrated rack, we were able to perform experiments that zeroed in on that cool flame capability and were able to observe it over time. And again, because we don't have uh, buoyancy-driven convection, you don't have the turbulence surrounding the flames, we can study it in much more detail. And the hope is that these observations will allow us to refine our models and make more efficient engines uh, and more efficient fuel burning processes here on Earth. We've been talking about experiments that are going on uh, today and results of previous research. Um, look to the future for me. Tell me about some of the things you see coming 
experiments that are going to be on the International Space Station that you're excited about? Okay, so uh, one of the investigations I'm very excited about, uh, it's also just been through a repair. So while our crew members were taking EVAs to go fix the AMSO2 investigation outside, they were also preparing to do a, uh, an upgrade to one of our investigations inside. And that's to a very exciting experiment called the Cold Atom Lab. So cold atoms, um, uh, we also refer to as Bose-Einstein condensate, are uh, another state of matter where you get it to very low temperatures, near absolute zero. Uh, the wave packet of an atom becomes significantly larger. In fact, macroscopic, so we can start observing the behavior of these things. We have many teams selected to do investigation on the cold atom lab right now. Uh, in fact, three team members with Nobel laureates on them have been waiting to conduct their research. And the recent upgrades to the system, uh, called Science Module 3, are allowing us to incorporate their new research into the, the laboratory device itself. So CAL is an amazing instrument. It's probably one of the most complex instruments we've got on orbit. Another miracle of miniaturization where we've taken a whole laboratory bench back in the lab right. and compressed it into about a half a rack's worth of space. And we need microgravity because on Earth, to get to these cold atom states, you have to ha strongly trap the atoms. And gravity pushes the atoms into that trap, which exchanges energy with them and raises their temperature. So to get to extremely cold temperatures, near absolute zero, we have to make very weak traps. And if you remove gravity, you remove one of the impediments to getting to those very cold temperatures. Hmm. Now the stuff that in the investigations that our teams are going to look at are really amazing. They're going to look at uh, weak interactions between different types of atoms, in this case rubidium and potassium. To date we've had cold atoms in, made of rubidium and now the science module 3 should enhance our capability to do potassium atoms. So you can do tests of Einstein's equivalence uh, principle and other things where you drop two atoms of different mass and see which one really falls faster wow. or not. Mm -hmm. uh, so they'll be conducting those types of investigations. They'll also be looking at a process known as atom interferometry. So like I said, uh, atoms behave as, as waves. Uh, there's a wave-particle duality to atoms that we know about from quantum mechanics. And what that means is when you get very cold atoms, you can start having their wave packets interact. And this is the same way that light may interact in a light-based interferometer, except mm. now we're talking about matter interacting this way. Wow. What this allows for is some incredibly precise measurements of things such as gravity, mass, uh, and other capabilities that we would be interested in for navigation purposes in the future. So we'll be looking at doing some initial tests into atom interferometry and how to create these next generation devices that may someday show up in your cell phone. We don't know. But, um, but you're saying that the, the precision of that measurement can translate into better instruments. Right, because it's being done on the atomic level. Mm -hmm. Right. So those, that experiment is one that's also been on hold while we uh, replaced this science module three, but I'm very excited to see it starting up again. There's a, so much of it that's, that's exciting, even to people like me who are not scientists, but it's still the, the, the prospect of, of what's being, the reality of what's being done, as well as the prospect of, of things to come. Uh, very exciting to hear about, and uh, I hope we'll get a chance to do this again. Mm -hmm. Kirk Costello, thank you very much. Thank you. We'd like to say that the International Space Station has as much room inside it as a five-bedroom house. That's huge, right? 
Well, I think the only way that that image can be made to seem small is to realize that this big house holds all the science hardware needed to support laboratory research on biology and biotechnology, and physical science, and technology development and demonstration, and human life sciences, and earth and space sciences, plus a television studio to accommodate your educational and cultural outreach activities, as well as storage space and room to sleep six, plus utilities and a nice big picture window with a one-of-a-kind view. The space station partner agencies have packed that five-bedroom house with the hardware and laboratory assistants who are necessary to do work in all of those scientific disciplines. You can keep up with the latest on the International Space Station, science-wise and otherwise, at nasa.gov station. And for students, we have a special heads up about space station science, or maybe more accurately, your science on the station. To celebrate 20 years of continuous human presence living and working in space, our STEM on Station team here at the Johnson Space Center will fund five student-designed payloads to fly to and return from the space station. It's part of the Student Payload Opportunity with Citizen Science program. We love acronyms. That's SPOCS, S-P-O-C-S. For more information and to submit proposals, make sure to check out www.nasa.gov slash stemonstation slash spocks. Mark it on your calendars because submissions are due by 5 p.m. Eastern Time on March 27, 2020, the end of this month. I'll also remind you that you can go online to keep up with all things NASA at nasa.gov. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at all the NASA JSC accounts. When you go to those sites, use the hashtag AskNASA to submit a question or suggest a topic for us. Remember to say that it's for Houston We Have a Podcast. You can find the full catalog of all of our episodes by going to nasa.gov slash podcasts and scrolling to our name. You can also find all the other exciting NASA podcasts right there at the same spot you find us, nasa.gov slash podcasts. Very convenient. This episode was recorded on February 3rd, 2020. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Gary Jordan, Nora Moran, and Belinda Polito for their help with the production. And to Jennifer Buckley, David Brady, Brian Dansbury, Rachel Barry, and Leanne Rogers in the International Space Station Program Science Office for helping pull the pieces together. And thanks to our guest, International Space Station Chief Scientist Kirk Costello. We'll be back next week. <laughs>